It's a real privilege to have a special guest with us this morning. I want to just introduce him, and he's going to come up here in a minute. And I know him well enough that he would say, just tell him that I'm a nice guy and that I just love people. But, you know, I think, honestly, in our region, we really don't do a good enough job of honoring people that are from this area, you know. So I want to just share a few things with you this morning because we kind of want to break that. We want him to stay around here a little more, too, you know. Maybe it's selfish. But uh, Jonathan Welton is from Rochester, New York. Jonathan and Karen. Karen's expecting uh, the first child, so she's home today. Mothers can relate to that. Um, but he is uh, he's really a rising voice in the body of Christ with a, a seer gift and teaching, prophetic ministry gift. Um, and he's just a great guy. The, we brought a whole bunch of books out in the back, so make sure you look through them. Uh, resources, all types of stuff. Uh, we've gone through a lot of them here ourselves. Uh, School of the Seers was his fir- your first book. It really took off. And um, from there, he uh, came out with Normal Christianity. So if you want to learn about how to just not lead just a moral life, but a supernatural life, that's a good book to get. Um, if it's a lot of times Christianity has been relegated to just being having good morals, well, it's a lot more than that. So he'll talk about it in there. Eyes of Honor is really one of the best books written on sexual purity in our day and age. And there's tons of them that talk about groups and getting together and talk about sin, but this one really goes to the root issues. So uh, Joy and I have both been through that. It is an excellent book, so we really recommend it. And his latest one, and he's going to talk about them too, so I don't want to talk about it too much, but is called Rapturalist, an Optimistic uh, Guide to the End of the World. And uh, so get, read it, get it, be challenged. It's excellent. Uh, how we view the future has a lot of impact on how we make decisions now. And uh, so it, it's excellent. John has two master's degrees. He's working on his Ph.D. Uh, and I would say if I could sum up everything about him is he's really just a seeker of truth. And it's a liberating ministry to shed those mindsets that have held us captive for years. Sometimes there's so much of them in the church, you know, forget about not being a believer. We've carried some mindsets and things our whole lives that aren't even right. So he really, his heart is to set people free. And he's an awesome guy. He's one of the nicest guys I've met. He's real. He's humble. And it sounds like we're introducing the President of the United States. But Come on up, John. He's the real deal. Well, good morning. How many of you are here today? Yeah. Oh, that was less than half. Well, (laughs) we'll catch up. Well, it really is an honor to be here. Um, My wife and I uh, both grew up here in Rochester. I was uh, raised in Penfield. My wife was raised in the city. Uh, We moved away for three years to work uh, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania for Randy Clark. Got to travel all over the states, all over the world with Randy. And uh, it was just a tremendous honor. We we decided after uh, School of the Sears came out to move back to Rochester and for the last uh, five years, uh, we've been back for three, but the last five years we've been on the road itinerantly full-time. So we travel all over the world, all over the country. Um, my wife actually just got back from two weeks in Thailand and then went immediately into three Thanksgivings and is 23 weeks pregnant. So she was ready for uh, sleeping in this morning. <laughs> so she has uh, the morning off. Well, I'm just really excited to be here in Rochester. It's not too often that I get to speak here. When I am home, we've, we've, my wife and I have made New Covenant Fellowship in Penfield our, our home church, and uh, they've really honored and taken care of us and been family to us when we're home. Uh, but we've been connecting with, with Steve and, and with Ralph, and, and uh, it's just been wonderful. So I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, from other itinerants I know, you know, people quote that verse, uh, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. And they, they talk about in your own town, it's hard to find a place where you're honored and accepted and respected that pretty much if you can drive 50, 50 miles, you can be an expert anywhere. 
So to be, to be in your hometown and be able to share, this is just great. Um, I do want to talk about some, some prophetic kind of stuff this morning. Uh, but before I do, I just want to mention a couple more things uh, that, that Steve was just talking about. The four books that I've written, I just want to highlight two of them that I think uh, are real important right now for the body of Christ. I, I think all four are important in different ways because I wrote them, so I kind of feel that way. <laughs> could be a little bit biased. But I really feel like there's a couple of them that are real important right now. Um, the one that he mentioned, Eyes of Honor, is not purely a, uh, a sexual purity book. It's really an identity book. Because I don't believe that the body of Christ has a sin issue. We have an identity issue. People are lost in this whole sin focus thing, when reality is if we don't have our identity in place, we're going to have a sin issue. You know, the whole challenge to Jesus in the wilderness was, if you are the Son of God, if you are, if you are, it was a challenge to his identity. And if his identity wasn't secure, he would have fallen into that challenge. It was the same thing that happened in the garden to Adam and Eve. The question that, that the serpent brought to Eve was, God knows that in the day you eat of this fruit, you will be like him. You'll know good from evil, and you'll be like God. Now, that doesn't seem like a sensible temptation if you really think about it because she was already made like God. You ever thought about that? The, the, I've heard some, some ignorant exposition before where people say, well, the issue was that she wanted to be like God and that was arrogant. Well, no, she already was like God. That makes the temptation even more confusing. It's like tempting you with something you already have. So then when God calls her to account after the fact and he says, well, why did you eat the fruit? And she says, I was deceived and I ate. Well, that's actually a poor translation. If you look that up in a Young's literal translation, it says, I forgot and I ate. Well, what did she forget? She forgot that she was already like God. See, we don't have a sin issue. We have an identity issue. We keep forgetting who we really are. You know, when we lose hold of the fact that we're new creations, empowered by grace, walking in complete freedom, perfect, blameless, righteous, holy, when we lose track of that, it's easy to fall into sin. But you keep that in front of your eyes, it's easy to walk in righteousness. What can you do to be more holy? A couple of you know the answer, nothing. (laughs) What can you do to be less holy? Oh, that one's a little harder for us. We, we, a lot of us have believed a lie. It's a lie that comes from the holiness movement a hundred years ago, and it's time to go flush. Yeah. We need to flush some of these things. Right. You can't be more holy than what he already did and made you. Right. If you're in Christ, how holy is Christ? Then you're good. If you're out of Christ, you have a problem, and we can get that. There's, there's a prayer for that. We, we can take care of that. <laughs> but if you're in Christ, you have it. Now, people are running around the country going to conference after conference to get another mantle, to get a new anointing, to get a new whatever, to get all the stuff that you already have. You know, people are looking for more authority in the spirit realm. Well, does Jesus have all authority? Are you in Jesus? How much more authority do you need? (laughs) This work stuff is killing us. And we're we're wasting our whole life on it. It's time to understand the finished message of the cross that what Jesus did is a complete work. You can't add anything to it. You can't make yourself more holy. What you can do is get a revelation of how holy he's made you and live in it. That's why he says you need the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the eyes of your heart would be enlightened that you may know the glorious inheritance in the saints. You need a revelation of what he put inside you already. The revelation you need is what he's already given you. Waves of revelation, he put that in me. He already made me this. He made me this and he made me this. Whoa! That's the revelation we need. But so often the revelation we hear is just like 
you know, get us to work more, get us to work harder. I need to pray harder, fast harder, cry more, all that stuff. You know what? The, you, you can pray, you can fast, you can read your Bible more, you can do all that stuff to come into alignment of understanding of who you are already. That's the right way to do it. But to try to get more from God is to believe a lie that he's holding something back from you. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> you know, I don't want to get too far into, uh, you know, I'm not going to talk about eschatology at all this morning, but uh, I will just mention that my rapturalist book uh, is really challenging. You probably haven't heard stuff like it because it looks at it looks at church history and it looks at the future and you end up with a positive outlook for the future. So it makes it a very unique book compared to most of the books that are out there. So one of the things that I find interesting is there's a lot of people who, who teach from this passage in Revelation 3 where it talks about the Laodicean church. You guys have all heard of the Laodicean church. They're the ones that if you're not hot, if you're not cold, you're going to get spit out of his mouth. You guys have heard this verse, right? So let's just do a, a quick test and see if you've, you've heard this the same way I have growing up. Being hot for God, is that good or bad? Being cold for God, good or bad? Being lukewarm, good or bad? Really bad. <laughs> that's right. There's always a, that's worse, that's bad, that's really bad. Well, here's the thing, though. When we define what's hot and what's cold, what most people do is we take sort of a surface approach to it. We say, okay, hot, that means fervent for God. It's kind of like when the worship's going really crazy and I got all sweaty and I'm sweaty for God, I must be hot for God. <laughs> I know that's kind of a funny uh, explanation, but it's, it's really what we're saying. Like being passionate, being fervent for God, being hot for God, that that's, that's hot and hot is good. Now, cold, cold is like an atheist, like not someone in the church, like someone outside the church that's like anti-God, like, you know, Richard Dawkins is cold for God, like that, that kind of approach. And that's, that's the way probably most of us have heard that taught. Maybe you've heard a different variety, but that's kind of the way we've heard it. But then you have lukewarm. Now, lukewarm, that's really bad, right? That's what we just said together, right? Really bad. <laughs> And it is. It is the worst option of the three. And what we usually do there is we create a second class of Christian. We say there's, there's the hot Christian, and then there's the mediocre Christian. That's the lukewarm. There's the hot, fervent Christian, and then there's the, we'll just call them the crappy Christian. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's, it's not you, unless you're having a bad week. But, <laughs> but you, all, you all know one of them. So... <laughs> The reality is this, though. We got a problem with our definitions. What we just said is that God would rather have you be an atheist than be a crappy Christian. He'd rather have you burn in hell than to get into heaven not doing so great and limping along. Do you hear what we just said? And that's something we've bought into. And it's amazing how this, this understanding... Uh, toward the book of Revelation, toward things in the scripture, that we just take things at a surface glance and we go, well, it just must mean this. Hot for God means passionate for God. Cold must mean outside the church. And the other one's mediocre. So you don't want to be mediocre because that's how God would just puke you out. He likes you the least. But he doesn't mind the one that's going to burn in hell. Do you see how that poorly reflects on God? It's really... It's pretty messed up. I think it's pretty messed up. So here's what's really going on, though. When you read this passage, what we have to do is we have to understand it in context. Part of the context is you look at it inside of history and how it would make sense. Now, in history, 
Laodicea was one of three cities. It was kind of the tri-cities. They were close near each other. Actually, if you read in Colossians chapter 4, I think it's verse 13, he refers to Laodicea and Aeropolis. The three cities that were near each other were Colossae, Aeropolis, and Laodicea. So here's what's going on in this picture. Aeropolis was known for its amazing mineral springs. People would go there, they'd sit in this hot water, they would get healed of things, the sulfur and the minerals and the salts and all of that, they'd get healed of stuff. Or people would go up to Colossae where there were two large mountains and and there was an icy river stream that would come flowing down from the mountains and people would go and they'd drink the icy water and they'd be refreshed and it was this exciting place to go and drink ice cold water. So you have those two cities... And downstream from both of them is Laodicea. And by the time you get to Laodicea, the hot mineral springs and the cold, icy, refreshing waters have blended together into this putrid, lukewarm, minerally nasty, all of Laodicea smells like the mineral springs and it's just gross and putrid and it's lukewarm. And he's using something in the natural to prophesy to them to say, I wish that you in the spirit were like Aeropolis where people could come and they could sit in the hot mineral water and they could be refreshed and they could be healed. Or I wish that you in the spirit were like Colossae with the cold refreshing mountain streams where people come and get vitality and life. But instead, Laodicea, you've become like the putridness that you are in the natural. You've become like the lukewarm water that you can't drink that flows through your city. That's what you've become like. Does that paint a different picture? It's amazing how often we do this with the word. It's so unfortunate because so many doctrines that people hold to, you know, we're the Laodicean church, we're the Laodicean age, all these concepts come from such a a small understanding of what scripture is really saying. And if we can get things, if we can look deeper, if we can dig a little deeper, we can find truth. Now, for me, my my largest core value is freedom. I love truth because truth will set you free. See, people love truth sometimes for different reasons. Sometimes they love truth because if I have more truth than you, it makes me smarter. Or I like truth because it makes me more right. I don't pursue truth to be more right. I pursue truth to be more free. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. I believe that that freedom is found by knowing the truth. So we have to go after that, that, that core value. And for me, it's not just gaining more knowledge. It's every time I find that, I go, wow. So God is not more interested in in. He's not more satisfied with an atheist going to hell than he is with a mediocre Christian. We've understood some of this wrong, and it poorly reflects on his nature. Does that help? Cool. Well, I don't have terribly long this morning, but we're going to get right into it. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, help these people. Amen. (laughs) Just looked like you needed it. As I've been traveling, something I've noticed, especially in the last few weeks, is that uh, since the election, a lot of people are discouraged. Anybody else feel kind of sucker punched in the gut? Raise your hand. Look around. Uh, Everybody kind of felt that. Uh, It was a surprise. It was a startling thing. Even if you voted either way, but even if it was just over over the homosexual agenda, if it was over, you know, not being able to smoke pot or being able to smoke pot, whatever it was, a lot of people felt, after that election. I think some of it was a relief that it was over, at least. At least it's over. We can say that, right? There's something you could say around the Thanksgiving table. At least it's over. Well... One of the things that I think that that is interesting specifically about Rochester is that we we are a strongly prophetic voice. And I don't know if you realize the the full scale of this, but this is one of the things about Rochester that's just...
I think a lot of us don't realize. I mean, we are aware that Finney came through. We're aware that, you know, the Ray Cell 1994 renewal hit the area for a while. We're aware of a lot of things. But there's an overarching call around Rochester. There's an overarching stamp that's on this city. And it's something that I, I really am excited to be back for because I believe there's something as we move forward. Now, when we look back at Finney, for example, and, and everybody likes to talk about Finney, but one of the things I found fascinating about him is that when he came into the city, nobody wanted to work with him. He went to all his Presbyterian buddies, and nobody wanted to connect. And they said, no, 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 the sovereignty of God, God will move when God is ready to move. And Finney said, no, God will move because I'm here. It's a whole different approach. And none of them would work with him. Nine months later, all of them were working on his ministry team because he was right. So when you look at this situation, he shows up in, in uh, June of 1830. And nine months later, in March of 1831, he had had 100,000 converts and over 90% of the population turned to Christ. And everybody of those Presbyterian Sovereignty of God pastors had come and apologized and got on board and became a part of his ministry team. There's something that, that we've misunderstood in the body of Christ as if we're, we're waiting, we're praying, we're crying out, we're fasting, we're blah, 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 blah for revival, whatever that is. When in reality, we just need to get back to the original recipe. Just be a normal Christian. Just be what the book of Acts describes as a normal Christian. That, that standard has been lost. And so when a normal Christian shows up, we call them a revivalist. We put them on a pedestal and we go, wow, we're revivalist. Instead of, oh, a glimpse of normal. Ah, we should do that too. And, and so that unfortunate cycle continues. And, and many of them too, can, they, they try to pull us up. But we just, no, 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 you just stay on your pedestal and I'll stay comfortable and I'll honor you and you get to be that. And there, there ends up a, a distancing when in reality, if we can just train people to be normal Christianity, you know, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, raise the dead, normal Christian stuff, we need to get this as normal. It's not something that's like the mega man of faith can do that. That's normal stuff. And until we understand that that's normal stuff, it's easy to come up with excuses to sit on our hands and be like, no, God will show up when he's ready to show up. Well, he's ready. He said today is the day of salvation. Not pray and pray and pray and pray and someday will be the day of salvation. No, today is always today. God is ever present. It's a present move that's always ready to come. Am I talking to the right group this morning? Okay. One of, the, one of the great sayings Bill Johnson has is he says that most closed heavens are between the ears. <laughs> See, Jesus opened the heavens. They've never closed again. There's nothing we can do to open them. There's nothing we can do to close them. The issue is a revelation in our mind of whether they're open and whether we're going to walk in agreement with it. If we understand that's always open, so it's not closed because I thought something or was angry one day or whatever. That's always open. So the issue here is coming into alignment with it for me. And as this prophetic voice, one of the things about Rochester that, that we have, of course, Finney, but there's a few other sides of this that Finney brings a sweeping move through 1830 to 1831. But after that, there was a tremendous amount. It was like a void was left in the spirit, an opening after that move. And there was a void that was left open that a lot of other stuff came through. I don't know if you are aware of this, uh, some of us more than others perhaps, but uh, Palmyra, New York is where Joseph Smith had his uh, false vision of the false angel Moroni and created the Mormon religion. Palmyra, that's right here. They have the Hill Cumorah Festival every year. They come back and, and everything. That came out of Rochester. We also were one of the large starters of the New Age movement. I don't know if you're aware of that, but if you go back and you study the Fox sisters, they had their experience in Hydesville, New York in 1848. 
18 years after the, first great, the Second Great Awakening swept through the area. This area used to be called the Burned Over District, meaning that the secular news reporters were saying that it was like a religious spiritual fervor hung in the air over upstate New York. And they just reported it as the Burned Over District, as if fire was hanging in the air. So when the Hyde sisters, uh, 13 and 15 years old, began to hear a, a knocking on the wall of their cabin in Hydesville, New York, and they began to figure out through numbers and through interacting with this, this sound, they began to talk to it. They call it Mr. Splitfoot, which was a reference to the devil having split hooved feet. And so they would talk to this spirit and they would say, you know, who are you? Where'd you come from? How old are you? When did you get here? And it told them, I'm the spirit of a peddler who came through the area and was murdered and buried in the basement. So they brought a whole bunch of people out to check out this cabin. And they had, you know, Methodist pastors and Presbyterian pastors and Baptist pastors. And all these people came out to check it out. They began to dig in the basement to look for the body of the skeleton. And they never, they never found anything. They dug down, they hit water. Now, a few years later, the house burned down. And when the house burned down, they found that there was a false wall built into the basement. And behind the false wall was a skeleton and a peddler's box. You can actually drive to Hydesville, New York. It would take you from here about 30, 40 minutes. And you can see that they've built a glass house around the foundation of their cabin after it burned down. And you can see the false wall. So they weren't able to prove it at first, but years later it was actually validated. Now, I don't believe it was the spirit of the peddler, some sort of ghost, but when murder happens, demons are involved. So I do believe that a spirit was talking through that experience. Well, those two girls who began to have that experience, the Fox sisters, from 48 to 88, 1848 to 1888, traveled all around the Northeast region doing seances, and speaking on behalf of the spirits, the evil spirits, of course. And we were one of the big, big movements of spiritualism. Mormonism came out of here. Spiritualism came out of here. Second Great Awakening swept through here. We've had a lot of stuff. I say that to say we have to understand our our heritage in this area is so prophetic. There's something here, even in the sense of uh, Kodak, you know, we have Kodak, we have Xerox, we have Bausch and Lam, we have contacts, photography, and copies. Everything about that is visionary. We're the imaging center of the world. There's something visionary about this place. My my book, School of Sears, was the first one that came out. It's it's gone through 11, 11 printings. It's it's a tremendously well-selling book. And I believe a part of it is the Lord has put me here in a time and a place to speak something into Rochester, to bring something out of us about the prophetic. There's been a lot of prophetic voices in this area, more than most of the places I go. I go to a lot of cities where there's one church that is trying to pioneer the kingdom movement and kingdom understanding. But Rochester has many, many voices for the prophetic. One of the things about the prophetic that a lot of people have not understood, though, is that prophets speak the opposite word. And this is what I want to hit on today, because what has happened is that people are seeing what happened with the election, they've gotten discouraged, and now they're speaking doom and gloom. And I'm seeing it everywhere. I mean, all, all the heroes that I look up to, that the day after the election, you're like on Facebook going, what are they going to say? And even the ones I look up to the most gave some of the worst words. And it was super discouraging because there's a lack of understanding. Prophets speak the opposite word. When you look through Scripture, you begin to see an example. When Israel is doing great... Prophets would show up and get them back on track and speak a corrective word. When Israel was doing really bad and they're beaten down and they're just being whooped on by whoever, the Midianites and the the Philistines and whoever, the prophet would show up and strengthen their hands and gird up their loins and, and get them moving again. Prophets speak the opposite word. And if I can talk to you, the whole room, as a bunch of prophets today, 
Instead of, you know, just seeing ourselves as, as whatever. Don't put someone else on a pedestal as that's the voice. You're the voice. You're the voice to your family, to your neighbors, to your friends, to your coworkers. You're that voice. And you're the one who gets to speak that opposite word. You're the one who gets to speak a word of hope right now. So this concept is that, that Romans 12, it talks about prophesy in accordance with your faith. See, when you prophesy, you're meant to speak by faith. It takes no faith when you're discouraged to prophesy doom and gloom. If you see circumstances around you and economics and politics and whatever, and you begin to feel like, oh, it's all collapsing, and then you begin to prophesy out of that, it takes no faith to do that. So what Romans 12 is making this point is that you prophesy according to your faith. So now when you see doom and gloom around you, you prophesy hope, which actually takes faith on your part. It means that you're going to be the contradictory voice. You're going to be the Romans 4.17 speaking things that are not as though they are. You begin to speak that opposite word. You begin to release it. There's that, that verse where it says that nothing is impossible with God, which, which is great. It's super encouraging. Put it on a little plaque, put it in your bathroom, whatever. But at the same time, it's, it's actually really poorly translated because the root words in there include the word dunamis and rhema. And if you've ever taken any kind of prophetic anything, you know those two Greek words. You may not know any other Greek, but you know those two. Rhema is the prophetically spoken word of God, and dunamis is like the dynamite-like power of God. So what it actually says is that no rhema comes without the dunamis. When it says in the English, nothing is impossible with God, what it actually says is no rhema comes without the dunamis. That means every prophetic word comes with the power built inside itself to cause itself to happen. We, we, we really, what we're doing when we're warring with our prophecy is we're getting our prophecy to release the power that's already in it. The word comes with the power inside it to cause itself to happen. It's like the seed and it just needs to be cracked open for that thing to sprout, for that stuff to come out of it. The power is inside of the rhema itself. So when we begin to speak these words, we're speaking into that void of discouragement and depression and, and loss and doom and gloom and all those feelings. And it's, those feelings are just prevalent. They're all over the board. It, people are feeling that way, whether it's uh, you know election or economics or recession or job or Mayan calendar or whatever. People are feeling this stuff. And we get to be the one that throws those words in there that begin to resonate, that begin to crack themselves open and they have power in them to cause themselves to happen. So first we test the word, but the word also releases something. I guess I'm just going to freestyle about a nature of prophecy a little bit with you. So... The first thing we do, we get a word, we have to test it. But the thing that a lot of people don't understand is then the word begins to test you. It says in Psalms, it says of, of Joseph that his, the, the word of the Lord tested him and his soul was laid in irons. So he gets this amazing word that you're going to be the ruler, you're going to be the head, not the tail. You're going to, you know, he gets this crazy word about everybody's going to bow down to him and he's going to be in rulership. So he gets this word and he's like, yeah, I'm an arrogant kid and I think this is great. And the next thing you know is he goes into the pit and then he goes into Potiphar's house and then he goes into the prison and then it finally happens. That's a part of the nature of prophecy. I don't know if you know this, but when people release a word, it releases a, a process into their life. If the word is that you're going to be a 10 and you're currently a 5, it means you're going to zero first. <laughs> we cruise through life and you're a 5 and then all of a sudden a prophet comes into town and he's like, blah, 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 I should have bought a Kia, but you bought a Hyundai. And... <laughs> 
Some of you are still getting it in the back. That's okay. So they give you this amazing word about how you're going to be a 10 and you're going to be a millionaire and all this stuff. And the next thing you know, it's like all these stuff breaks down and you have to pay for everything. And your account gets wiped out and you're like, what happened to the word? It started to happen. The word is happening to you right now. The word is now testing you. It's released a power into your life. It's doing something. They called something that was not as though it were but now it releases something that begins to unravel into you because what God, want, God intends to do is build a foundation in you deep enough that you can hold a 10 in your life. If He took you straight from 5 to 10, you'd blow your life up because you have no foundation. It's like He shows up and says, okay, t- tear the house down. We're going to drop a skyscraper on the foundation. He's not going to do that. He doesn't want to do that. That You end up like Samson. Take a man with no character and you drop a skyscraper of anointing on his life and squish. And that's why you see this process in the rest of all of God's heroes in the, New, in the Old Testament. You see these stories. God wants Moses to lead his people in, in the wilderness for 40 years. So he has w- Moses in the wilderness for 40 years of training beforehand. You guys ever notice that? I bet that in Moses' life, he spends the first 40 years in the, in the palace learning and training and, and growing up as royalty. Then he spends the next 40 years in the backside of the wilderness probably beating himself up. I'm the fugitive murderer. I never should have killed that guy. I could be living in the palace right now. What was I thinking? That was so dumb. And he's just pounding himself. And from God's perspective, God knows what he's doing because he's got another 40 years that he has to lead 3 million Israelites through the wilderness. So what to us may look like punishment, to God is just simply training. So we're walking around and around and around beating ourselves up and God's like, no, you don't understand. This is about training you. You're taking dumb sheep through the wilderness for 40 years so you can take my dumb sheep through the wilderness for 40 years. And so often we just have a distorted view of what that walking with God is that we think we're under some sort of punishment or discipline when he's like, I have to do this in you to release more. Uh, when we read through Hebrews chapter 12 and it talks about chastisement, and I don't know what translation you read, but some say chastisement, some say punishment, some say discipline. The real word there is discipline. And why does God discipline us? You get to the end of the chapter and he says, so that you may reap the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So the ultimate outcome of God's discipline is promotion. The only reason God disciplines is not to punish sin. That was already taken care of. If God were to punish your sin, he'd need to be apologizing to Jesus. Because either it was paid for or it wasn't. Either it was forgiven or it wasn't. So for you to pay for your sin, God is doing something wrong there. The reality is it's just something warped in our mind. Your sin is not being punished. We'll just let that one rest. So, (laughs) So here's what's happening. When you're going through something, God's discipline is intended to build a foundation into your life so that then when He promotes you, it doesn't destroy you. So the reason He disciplines is to build a foundation into you so that when He promotes you, it doesn't destroy you. That's God's heart in discipline. That's why He allows us to go through hard things. It's not punishment. Well, it's quiet in this Methodist church. So I think one of the important things that we run into is what do we do when our favorite heroes are prophesying doom and gloom? What do we do when we're hearing those words? You know, the ones that sound hopeful at first and then they kind of end out with, and then there will be consequences or judgment is about to fall or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. 
what I've come to understand, and this is something that's so important for us to get a hold of, is there's a difference between false prophets and bad prophets. There's a huge difference between false prophets and bad prophets. I just want to show you from Scripture because I've never really heard anyone else share this. I don't even know. I believe that the Lord showed this to me um, many years ago. I can't, I can't say that I've heard it somewhere. But in uh, Deuteronomy 13, we have a description of what a false prophet is. Deuteronomy 13, starting in verse 1. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you away from the Lord your God and commanded you the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. There's your definition of a false prophet. It's someone who gets their prophecy right and says, let's go after a false god. That's a false prophet. People have been saying false prophet for years over people who are leading us towards Christ, but get their prophecies wrong. That's a total different picture. A true false prophet, you know, Old Testament stoning time, is someone who they get it right, and then say, now let's follow after other gods. Here's the definition of a bad prophet, though. Let's go over to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting in verse 17. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously do not be alarmed, or some, some translations say, do not be afraid. He just clarified something here. If it's a false prophet, you put him to death. That's where he added in verse uh, 20. A prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. But the one who speaks presumptuously, he says in verse 22, if a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not come to, to pass or take place, that message the Lord has not spoken, that prophet has spoken presumptuously, do not be afraid. There's a difference here. A false prophet gets it right and then takes you after other gods. A bad prophet is a prophet of the Lord who leads you toward the Lord but speaks presumptuously and gets it wrong. And in that case... Don't be afraid of him. There's a lot of prophets on the uh, Elijah list that I'm not afraid of. <laughs> Just need to say it as simple as that, that there's seriously some, some bad words and some bad prophets. Bad prophet, no. That we, need, we need to have clarity here. It doesn't mean that we're calling them a false prophet. We need to stone them. They're not leading us after other gods. They just get it wrong. And they're presumptuously speaking things that are not coming to pass, that are not the Lord's heart, that are not accurate. And we need to know the difference to be able to say, no, that's our brother, that's our sister in the Lord. We love them, we appreciate them, they're cute, whatever. But they get it wrong. And I have great respect for prophets who, when they get it wrong, will take responsibility. 
And unfortunately, that doesn't happen very often. But to be able to say, you know what, I, I missed it. I, I had, you know, I didn't eat my Wheaties, and I was upset, and I prophesied that, and it was wrong. There has to be some level of personal, ah, yeah, I missed it. I spoke presumptuously. And he doesn't say, stone the bad prophet to death. He just says, look, he spoke presumptuously. Don't be afraid of him. Which is really saying, like, you know, you don't have to be afraid when they speak those words because clearly they're hit or miss. He's not saying stone everybody who gets it wrong once in a while to death. And that's been a misunderstanding inside the church. If your prophecy was 100% accurate and you spoke for the Lord, we should be writing it down as like addition to the scripture. But prophecy is not 100% accurate. Prophecy at this point is the heart of the Lord, but the, the, the Lord's word is done. And this is the more sure word of prophecy. The Bible, 1 Peter 1.20, talks about a more sure word of prophecy. So we judge ours against it, and it's always right. And sometimes we're right, and sometimes we're not. And we have to have that level of saying, you know what, I thought this was going to happen, but I missed it. That's okay. I'm not going to get stoned to death. I can miss it. But I'm growing, because I want to hear more, hear more and hear more. He said, my sheep hear my voice. That's sheep, not lambs. Lambs have to learn to hear the voice of the shepherd. There's a growth and there's a maturity in hearing. So here's one other thing I want to add to this. And I know I, I, see, I see the runway. I see where I'm going to land. I see we're coming in. It's good. Who can give me five minutes? Five, ten, fifteen. <laughs> Such a generous church. One of the things that's been happening a lot, and I've heard it for years being in Rochester, is this concept of sheep and goat nations. Anybody ever hear that concept, sheep and goat nations? And the concept, for years I thought, you know, oh, America's going to be judged because we're not, we're a goat nation, we're not a sheep nation. And, and the more that people's perceptions get messed with, the more they start to declare, we're a goat nation and we're going down and we're in trouble. Anybody hear something like that? Okay, I'm talking to the right group. All right. You guys are fun. It's a little hard to see you, but you're, you're fun. I know, I know we're having a good time. So. so here's what happens, this whole sheep versus goats thing. So this passage is in Matthew 25, and he's talking about the, the sheep are, the, are his, they're the Lord's people, and the goats are not the Lord's people, and, and one are going to go to the right, the others are going to go to the left, and there's going to be blessing, and there's going to be judgment. And so there's this whole thing in Matthew 25, we'll look at it in a minute together, but the concepts that have come out of it are that we have to do all kinds of things to try to make our country a sheep nation so that we don't end up judged. But then if we actually start to think, which I highly suggest, if we, <laughs> if we turn on our brains and we start to think through some of these concepts, it's like, wait a second, wait a second. Does, to be a sheep nation, does that mean that 51% of the population of America has to be Christian? And then do I define Christian as, you know, Christian like me or, you know, do the Catholics count? Do the Baptists count? Do you, you know, the other guys. Like, like, that whole issue gets into the mix. And then you're like, okay, now you have to be a 51% uh, that, that are kingdom and like Bethel. Like, you know, you got to have 51% like that. Then we're a sheep nation. It, it started to really not make a lot of sense. I mean, for reality's sake, maybe we should just get a bunch of passports and every time we dip below 51%, go move to another country so we don't end up stuck in some sort of sheep nation, in some sort of goat nation, when judgment comes. See how confusing this issue is. What has happened has been a poor understanding of what Matthew 25 actually says about sheep and goats. I'll read it to you starting in verse uh, 31. 
When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on the right and the goats on His left. That's individual judgment. That's what we've missed. He said He gathers all nations, all ethnos, all races, all ethnicities before the throne. Not, here's the nation of America, here's the nation of Canada, here's the nation of whatever. He's not putting nations like that. He's putting all ethnicities and races before the throne to be judged, and he will separate the people one from another. Not races, not nations, not, well, I guess you're in trouble because you were born in the wrong country. And you couldn't move, so you're a goat. I know, I know we walk together you know, I was your savior while you were alive, but as soon as you died, you're, you didn't realize that you were born in the wrong country. Well, this is the messed up kind of thinking that comes out of these warped concepts of sheep and goats, and we've become a goat nation. There's no such thing as a sheep nation or a goat nation. There are sheep people and goat people. That's the real difference. It's an individualized judgment. And you begin to see that something has shifted from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, there were nations that were judged. Under the New Covenant, it's individual. Individual. You see Herod is eaten up by worms in Acts. Uh, chapter 12, he's eaten up by worms. In the Old Covenant, the nation would have been judged. Instead, the individual was judged. Even as a ruler, that ruler was judged. A lot of people are still thinking in the terms of national judgments. Do you see the issue? Do you see how important this is? Because people are still talking out of an old covenant understanding. They're not understanding that now things are on an individual basis. We're not under judgment as a country and there's a confusion about that. And I want to step a few more steps into the, the issue that I've created here. But the whole concept of nations being under judgment is a warped understanding. It's a warped understanding of covenant. Part of the issue is people think that America has a covenant with God. America never had a covenant with God. There's no covenant between God and America. Covenants can only come from the greater to the lesser. A covenant, another word for covenant would be a treaty. So a covenant is that the greater king comes to the lesser and says, let's make a treaty. The lesser doesn't get to come. It's a dishonor for him to show up in the presence of a greater. And the greater gets to offer out of mercy and grace, I will offer a covenant with you. So God is the only one that can offer covenants. Even if every governor, every senator, every congressman, the president, the Supreme Court, all of them were Christian, and you know, good Christian like my kind of Christian, and, <laughs> and they, I agreed with them and they were the perfect Christian and whatever, and they all got together in Washington and said, let's make a covenant with God. We'll write up a piece of paper, we'll all do a little whatever, and we'll pour some oil on the ground, and we'll have a covenant with God. It means nothing. It might be great. It might be nice. But it means diddly squat. Because to God, He already made one covenant. And He is not making any more because that one is perfect and it's awesome. The new, better covenant of the New Testament of Hebrews chapter 8 lays out for us that Jesus came from heaven, put on flesh, and represented mankind. For years, God the Father had a covenant with Israel, and it did not work out very well. I don't know if you've read any of the Old Testament prophets, but it's constantly calling Israel a harlot over and over and over because of these issues of they're not able to keep their side of the covenant. So he puts Jesus on earth, puts human flesh on him, and now Jesus gets to represent mankind to the Father. Hebrews 8 lays this out so clearly, 7, 8, 9, 10. It lays out the picture for us that Jesus is our high priest. 
Under Moses, the picture was the high priest was the one who represented mankind to God. Now Jesus represents mankind to God. So what he does in this new covenant is he has God the Father on one side of the deal and Jesus the Son representing humanity on the other side of the deal. And because he needs a perfect lamb sacrifice, Jesus also puts his own blood on the altar to make a perfect deal. And now the issue is this. The covenant is between the Father and the Son. The only covenant that exists is between God the Father and Jesus the Son. He's the high priest of humanity. He's the one who put his blood on the altar for us. And in that covenant is perfect forgiveness. So now the only covenant that exists is between God the Father and God the Son. I don't even have a covenant with God. I live inside the covenant that Jesus has with God. America can't break covenant with God because America can't be saved. Americans can be saved. And as an American, I can step inside of Christ and that covenant is perfectly upheld and perfectly established. And I can't break it or mess it up. The only issue now is I can step outside of the covenant and step away from those blessings or I can step back inside and live in the blessings of that covenant. We've got some really messed up teaching going on around the body about covenants with nations and God. He didn't make covenants. Under the new covenant, it's between the Father and the Son. And individuals can step inside the Son and live in a perfect covenant with God the Father. And that's where we get to live. And that's why we can prophesy something good. That's why we don't have to be prophesying the negative. Yes, we have made some horrible decisions with our economics. That is not the judgment of God. That is the stupidity of Capitol Hill. That does not have anything to do with the judgment of God. That has to do with really poor economic decisions going back quite a ways. So we have, we have choices that have been made. So in the sense of reaping and sowing, yeah, we sowed a bunch of really bad ideas and now we're going to reap some of them. That has nothing to do with God being angry at our nation. And when things happen, whether it's a giant hurricane that's, that hits the coast or you know, a tornado or an earthquake or all that stuff, we need to be the ones who step in and begin to declare what his nature is really like. We get to declare, we get to be the ones who speak that voice of truth and hope in every situation. That's our call. That's our call. That's our prophetic voice. That's, that's what needs to be coming out of us. And I want to see it coming out of Rochester more than anywhere else. Because this is, this is we've, we've had the prophetic really long and really deep, and it's amazing. But it's time for us to rise up because people need a word of hope. And it can't be this, this word of fear and this word of depression and this word of doom and gloom because that's not prophetic. That's simply looking at our surroundings and then pretending to be prophetic, speaking presumptuously. We have a covenant with God because we're in Christ. And He has a covenant with the Father. We get to remain and all the blessings flow down to us. Would you stand? Place a, heart, a hand on your heart. I just want to pray over everyone today. Lord, I thank You for Your people. I thank You for the shifting that's going on in some minds today, some shifting and some understanding, Lord. Thank you for creating a perfect covenant that never needs to be replaced, that never needs to be changed, for sending Jesus with flesh on him to earth to stand as our high priest, to, to be the perfect lamb sacrifice and the representative of mankind. We just thank you today, Lord. We thank you for that covenant that you have with your Son. And we thank you that we get to live inside, that we get to abide and remain. And all the blessings get to flow down. And everything is forgiven and you remember our sins no more. Lord, thank you for taking us out of that old blessing and cursing cycle and putting us into Christ and the blessing only zone. We thank you for that shift, Lord. We just thank you for that shift. And we stand under that favor 
the blameless, the righteous, the holiness that You've put inside us because of what was in Your Son and that we get that free of charge. Thank You, Jesus. Amen. 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 Isn't that good? It's a, it's a lot less complicated than I think we make it, right? I mean, one of the jokes we have is, uh, you know, easy. That's too much freedom. We need to add a little more old covenant in there. Just, you know, <laughs> right? add a, too much freedom. Let's talk about shame for a minute. You know, it's kind of how we are. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, but go have, be blessed. Go check out the books. Um, we'll have him back sometime too to speak about the eschatology because it is awesome. So, but uh, have a good day. And uh, actually, let's just stretch out your hands in agreement. We just want to bless him. God, thank you for the gift that Jonathan is. We pray a blessing over him today, over Karen, Lord, and all that they do. I pray um, your blessing of just rest as we go into this season, uh, for blessing, Lord, over their life in every single area, finances and uh, health and just fun being together. Lord, we just pray a blessing on them. And we're so thankful for the gift and the the word that he brought today. So we pray just a, a big blessing on his family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good week.